Whether you have a general interest in health and wellness, or you are already a medical professional, we're here to provide you with tools and resources to make informed decisions about your health. This is House Call, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's podcast. Here, our expert providers will share with you wellness tips, information, and general health advice. Thank you for listening. This is Brianna with HealthU, and I'm here today with Dr. Ginger Jano, a pediatric rheumatologist at Hackensack University Medical Center and Hackensack Meridian Health Medical Group. Today, we're going to talk about a condition that affects approximately 350 million people worldwide, arthritis. So thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So doctor, what exactly is arthritis? So at its very basic level, um, a lot of medical terms are derived from, you know, Greek and Latin roots. So arth means joint and itis means inflammation. So anytime you hear itis, like colitis or sinusitis, it means inflammation in the place that it's occurring. So arth means joint and itis means inflammation. So arthritis is inflammation in the joint. And inflammation um, is part of your body's immune response trying to fix a problem. And it usually shows up with swelling, warmth, um, pain, and redness. So what are some of the types of arthritis? So there are many different forms of arthritis. Some are autoimmune, meaning that the immune system, instead of doing its job and fighting just bacteria and viruses, is fighting um, your body, parts of your body. In the case of arthritis, that's really um, attacking the lining of the joint space. Um, In terms of types of arthritis, There is another form that is not autoimmune, and that's osteoarthritis, which is what we see a lot in older people. Okay. And that's really more of a wear and tear arthritis, um, sort of the process that occurs when the joints have just been pounded and pounded and pounded um, and develop more of a wear and tear issue. Aside from osteoarthritis, how does somebody develop um, the other forms of arthritis that you mentioned before? If I had the answer to that, um, I would probably be a millionaire. Um, (laughs) We are working very hard at figuring all of that out, but we don't have clear-cut answers yet. But what I can tell you is that there are genetic components and there are environmental components. And the way we know this is interesting. So if you think about families and you think about siblings, Mm -hmm. um, siblings share about 50% of their genetic material with each other. And then if you think about identical twins, they share about 100% of Mm -hmm. their genetic material with each other. And then strangers on the street, the, you know, shared portions are much lower. So we know that when you look at incidents of arthritis, particularly juvenile arthritis, which is what I see mostly as a pediatric rheumatologist, Mm -hmm. um, the prevalence is of both siblings having it is much higher in identical twins than it is in regular siblings that are not identical twins. And then Hmm. it's higher in siblings than it is in two random strangers in the population. So based on that, you can understand that there's a genetic component, plus there have been tons of genetic studies that have shown certain genes that are associated. However, it's not just genetic, because if it was just genetic, then identical twins would all have to have it, and that is not the case. Interesting. So yeah, so there are definitely some susceptibilities, um, some genetic susceptibilities that make you prone to developing it, and then you interact with something in your environment, and then the immune system 
you know, kicks into gear and starts creating problems in your joints. Now, arthritis doesn't discriminate based on age. You are a pediatric rheumatologist, so how young are some of the patients that you're seeing? Yeah, so it's definitely a common misconception that kids don't get arthritis. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the time when I tell people what I do for a living, their eyes get really wide and they say, wait, kids get arthritis yeah, too? Yeah. Um, but they do, and you can see it in um, kids as young as a year old. We rarely see it in kids under one and a half. Okay. Um, but you know, there is a subset of the population under two that can get it, and it can span the whole life course um, in terms of different forms of arthritis. Um, and certain forms are more common in younger ages, certain forms are more common in older ages, but it really doesn't discriminate. And when you say pediatric population, so you're seeing patients ages two, sometimes younger to what, about 16, 17, 18? So we actually see in our practice up to age 22. And so if you get admitted to the hospital, if you're 22 or younger, you will be admitted to the pediatrics hospital. Mm -hmm. So therefore, for purposes of continuity of care, we all um, see patients up to 22. I did read a startling statistic by the Arthritis Foundation saying that roughly 300,000 babies and children have um, arthritis or some kind of rheumatic condition. And I, I was completely blown away. Why do you think that pediatric arthritis is so heavily mis- and underdiagnosed? I think there are many reasons. Some of it has to do with medical education and training. And there's actually a large portion of physicians who, in surveys um, performed for research purposes, have said that they don't feel confident in their musculoskeletal exam, meaning their ability Mm. to examine the joints. Um, It's not focused on in medical schools, um, which we're working on. Our, Our division is working with the Hackensack uh, Meridian School of Medicine to fix that at problem <laughs> at Seton wow. Hall to fix that problem, um, trying to work it into the education as much as we can. Additionally, and this is a really surprising statistic, approximately 20% of kids who have arthritis don't perceive it as pain. Um, really? Yeah, and I, I would not believe that if I didn't see it myself all the time in daily mm-hmm. practice. But um, whether they get, there are a lot of theories as to why this is, whether they get used to it, whether it happens over such a gradual period of time that they don't notice it, um, whether sometimes it's they feel pain in one area, um, but they actually have arthritis in multiple other areas, and maybe the pain in one area is just so much more significant that they're focusing on that and it takes attention away from the other areas. We don't really know why. And so it really requires attention Hmm. on the part of the parent and the people around the parent and ideally understanding of these diseases on um, behalf of the pediatrician and the people watching the child Mm -hmm. to pick these things up and listen. Like toddler gates, I I mean, I have small children. I Mm -hmm. can tell you they walk funny, you know, like all little kids walk a little funny they waddle yeah. and they waddle and so to be able to identify a limp in a two-year-old that's difficult it's difficult and think of how pudgy they are sometimes you know those knees you're not necessarily going to notice that a knee or an ankle or a toe is swollen um, and we see it you know I, I don't want to say missed because I don't think anybody is you necessarily know, looking necessarily looking but I think 
um, often we have kids come into the office complaining of one joint and then mm. when we look at them we find multiple other joints and you know even the parents sometimes say oh my gosh I didn't real realize that finger was swollen mm-hmm. and they're seeing these kids every single day now joint pain is one of the most common symptoms what are some other symptoms? And again, if a child isn't experiencing joint pain, what can a parent be on the lookout for? Right. That definitely makes it sound scary. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the most telling findings of arthritis is something called morning stiffness. And we ask our patients about this at every visit. Mm-hmm. What this is, it's a very specific phenomenon. So I, I like to explain it like this, and hopefully I don't ruin jello for you in this analogy, but if you've ever made jello, you know that you start out with a liquid and you put yes. it in the fridge mm-hmm. and it gets hard and then it's sort of this jiggly material that's more of a solid. So in your joint, when you have inflammation and inflammatory goo, um, which is you know all of these uh, inflammatory mediators and things that cause this response, mm-hmm. Um, basically, when you go to sleep at night or you're sitting still for a long time, it's like putting jello in the fridge. So mm. it sets and it turns into sort of more of a solid form. And then when you wake up, it feels stiff and hard to move because it's more solid. And as you start walking, you break it back up and you break it back into more of a liquid form. Got it. And so then it doesn't feel so bad. So a very common mm. story I hear um, and I get texts from friends sometimes. I've had a couple of occasions where my own friend's children have had issues with this. It says something, sounds something like this. It was the strangest thing. When Leo woke up, he was limping. And then 30 minutes later, he seemed totally fine. He's running around playing with his friends. Then he went to sleep for nap and he woke up and he was limping again. Wow, that's frightening. Yeah, and so parents don't know whether they need to bring their child to the doctor because they think it's a symptom that's coming and going. They don't Mm -hmm. have to worry about it. Um, But that, that for me and for most rheumatologists, is one of the most telling symptoms. Wow. You can also see um, swelling, Mm -hmm. limitation of motion. Um, In little kids, we think about things like their ability to hold things or writing. Uh, Sometimes I see deterioration in handwriting. Mm. Um, Kids that play sports aren't playing as well anymore. They're limping off the field, things like that. So there are a lot of subtle signs, but it's hard. I mean, a lot of kids also complain of pain. And it's it's a very common complaint at a pediatrician's office. Um, yeah. And there are a lot of other reasons other than arthritis. To that could be the about. cause. Now, how is a child then diagnosed with having arthritis? So it's based largely on our physical exam. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you come to the pediatric rheumatologist, um, well, the first thing we do is we take a detailed history. And parts of the story, like um, things like morning stiffness or limp in the morning, um, pain after being inactive for a while, et cetera, those kinds of things are red flags for us. Mm -hmm. Also, um, if it's a single knee as opposed to two knees, it tends to be more worrisome, things like that. But really what it comes down to is our exam. If we see fluid in the joint or if there's limitation of motion, meaning you can't bend your knee as far as you're supposed to, Mm. or you can't extend your knee as far as you're supposed to. Um, Those are symptoms on exam of arthritis. There are blood tests that can point us in one direction or another, but they are not diagnostic. And that's another thing that is often um, 
difficult for both parents and sometimes even pediatricians and other physicians who aren't pediatric rheumatologists Mm -hmm. to understand. In adults, um, there are certain blood tests um, that tend to be more diagnostic. And while we do some of these blood tests and we do see them positive sometimes in kids, and it can help us with determining prognosis, it's not diagnostic. We say Mm. you have arthritis based on our physical exam. Sometimes, we're not sure, we get additional testing, we get imaging. I personally do um, bedside ultrasound. It's something um, that is becoming more and more popular in the field of pediatric rheumatology and actually rheumatology in general. And what exactly is that for people listening? Oh, sure, sorry. No, it's fine. So. Ultrasound is a way of looking inside the joint um, using a bedside tool that basically uses sound waves to look under the skin. Um, It's Mm non-invasive. It's really just um, a wand that you place on the skin. It's the same tool that's used for if anybody's ever had an echocardiogram Mm -hmm. or an ultrasound when they were having a baby. I can use it and I can see if there's fluid. And as I had said, that's one of the ways of diagnosing it. And I can also see sometimes if there's inflammation because um, you can look for blood flow on ultrasound. Mm -hmm. And when you have inflammation, um, because your body is sending an emergency response team to the area, you get more blood flow. And Mm. so if I see extra blood flow on ultrasound, that can help me determine that there is inflammation in that area. Fascinating. Yeah, it's been really, it's been a really great tool. And I really like having the capability of using that to help, help diagnose patients and help get patients to treatment faster. Are there any health effects of having this go undiagnosed as a child or even as an adult, but we can focus mostly on children? Yes, absolutely. The most important reason to treat arthritis is so that we can avoid some of the long-term complications of arthritis. And these tend to revolve around destruction of your joints and disability. Okay. So how I like to explain it is that inflammation is like a fire. And if your house, and in this case, your house is your knee, is on fire, if we put out the fire before it burns down the house, Mm -hmm. then you still have a house, right? You can maybe do some little, you know, painting and whatnot, but you still have a house. Mm -hmm. If you let the fire just burn and burn and burn, eventually it burns the house to the ground. And when it burns your joint to the ground, that means that you end up with loss of cartilage, um, Mm. bony erosions, um, which are little bites taken out of the bone, and the bone rubbing against itself, and that can cause permanent disability. The good news is we are seeing so much less of this than we did in the past. Um, We have, thanks to the Arthritis Foundation, um, we have an arthritis camp that a lot of our patients go to for one week of the summer each summer. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a wonderful, wonderful program. Where is this? In past years, it's been in Hackettstown. It might be moving this year, so I'm not sure. Okay. But um, I can get that information for you. Um, But it's really nice because the kids get to see other kids who understand exactly what they're going through Mm. and really have respect for each other. And it's just it's such a special experience for them. Um, But when we used to look, you know, 10, 20 years ago at pictures from camp, there would be kids in wheelchairs, kids with crutches and all sorts of issues. But now we hardly see that, you know. 
That's it's amazing. It's very rare for a child to require a wheelchair in this day and age because we do have excellent medications to put the fire out. Um, now, these medications um, are expensive um, and they are not always fun to receive. A lot of them are given Injections. via injection and some of them are given as infusions in the hospital. Frequent? Um, Depending as on the often as two weeks, uh, most of the time it's every four weeks, but sometimes it's every two weeks. Okay. Um, and, you know, these are all challenges for family. It's missed work time. It's, you know, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of stress um, and a lot of um, challenges placed upon the family, but we can prevent disability, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's, I mean, it's really amazing and I feel very lucky to be working at a time when we have these tools and to be a part of the research that goes on to help develop them and really understand um, which patients, you know, respond best to what medications and mm -hmm. things like that. I don't know if you know, but um, at Joseph M. Sanzari Children's Hospital, mm -hmm. the Division of Pediatric Rheumatology is extremely involved in an organization called CARA, which is yes. the Childhood Arthritis and Rheumatology Research Association. CARA is um, a national, and I, actually including Canada, international um, consortium of pediatric rheumatologists that work together to do research um, with our patients, and we have a registry in which we try to enter every single one of our juvenile arthritis patients to capture information on their disease activity, their treatments, and how they're doing, how they responded to what, what medications mm -hmm. were better than what other medications, and it's, it's a really wonderful collaboration um, that we're very lucky to be a part of. Aside from medication, are there other treatments or any maybe holistic approaches that could help a child deal with pain or any of the symptoms that they may be managing? Absolutely. I mean, I certainly um, encourage patients to do things like, you know, ice, warmth, whatever really feels better to them mm -hmm. is worthwhile doing. A lot of families ask me about diet, um, and there's a lot of information about anti-inflammatory diets and things like that on the internet. Um, in pediatric rheumatology, I don't think we have enough data quite yet based on you know what we call evidence-based medicine, which is um, looking at studies, evaluating whether they were done in a good way, um, and deciding from that information whether or not we can use the data that they produced to mm -hmm. treat our patients. So that's evidence-based medicine. I don't think we have enough evidence-based medicine yet to say definitively, put your child on this restrictive diet. And part of the issue is because if, you know, you have a child that only eats chicken nuggets, mac and cheese, and that's carrots. That's going to be hard to restrict like them. Like, it's going to be very hard. Um, don't get me wrong, that's not the ideal diet, but as a parent, I can tell you, <laughs> you pick your battles and some things, you know, you can get your kids to do and some things you can. Yeah. And so I think advising a restrictive diet in a kid where we don't know 100% that it's going to help is not the best protocol. The best protocol. But I think if families want to try it, you know, they're welcome to. Um, and I certainly encourage people to figure out what works for them and and give me feedback like mm -hmm. we need to know that and i do think more studies need to be done on these kinds of things in the future 
Um, I know some patients have pain relief with acupuncture. I've had a few patients respond well to that. And children aren't fearful of the needles? <laughs> That's a very fair question. And many of them are. Having said that... I'm fearful of the needles. <laughs> <laughs> Um, having said that, I think that some of our kids, you know, unfortunately have to have so many injections over their lives that maybe needles are not as scary to them as they would be for another child. I mean, our, our patients also, a lot of them have to have blood work drawn every three months Mm. for medication management and things like that. And, um, you know, so I think it's a challenge. Um, I did not mention, and I, I, you know, don't know that it's necessarily an important part of this discussion, but there is a type of arthritis um, called systemic juvenile arthritis, which looks a little different than the other forms of arthritis. Okay. It tends to come with fever and rash, and the fever tends to come once a day at the same time every day, be very high spiking fevers, along with this weird rash that comes out on the skin, and it can cause a lot of inflammation and damage. And that can actually be... um, a fatal? fatal condition, yeah, because it can affect your heart, it can affect your blood cells, it can affect all different systems in your body, and those kids actually often can require an injection once a day also, so that was what made me think of that when we were talking about needles, wow. um, and it's, you know, it's a really challenging condition to diagnose. The other forms are basically classified by how many joints are involved, and certain genetic predisposing Mm. factors, um, something called an HLA-B27 can be associated with certain forms of arthritis. Um, I know we had mentioned, touched upon the genetic components previously, Mm -hmm. um, and the rest of the types of arthritis are diagnosed based on factors like that, and a rheumatoid factor, that's another blood test. Mm -hmm. But systemic juvenile arthritis is a different part of your immune system that's not working right. Can a child outgrow juvenile arthritis, or does it depend on the type that they have? That's a great question, and it does. It does depend on the type, and they can. I'm always hopeful, but a lot of the forms are chronic, um, lifelong, you know, relapsing and remitting conditions. Um, The most, the form of arthritis that most frequently goes into a complete remission and never comes back is something called oligoarticular arthritis. The again back to those Greek and Latin things. I, <laughs> um, oligo means um, in this case few, and in for our criteria that is less than four joints, okay, um, or four or less. Um, and kids who have you know one knee involved that come in, um, they're the group that's most likely to go into a complete remission and never have it come back. Sometimes we can. Um, get away with just putting medication, in this case, steroids, in the joint that's affected in that case Mm -hmm. and um, get rid of the inflammation. And sometimes we like to say we see a one and done and that's it. Um, Other times um, it comes back, sometimes in that joint, sometimes in other joints. And some kids, particularly with oligo, articular juvenile arthritis, so that four or fewer joints are more likely to develop something called another itis, anterior uveitis. Mm. And the uveal tract is part of your eye. So that's eye inflammation. Um, and that can be devastating as well. So these kids actually get sent um, 
for vision screenings with an ophthalmologist um, quite frequently to make sure that they're not developing silent symptoms because mm. though that you won't see on a regular physical exam until they already have damage until the house is partially burnt down then you see that and you can see changes to the eye but at that point um, you can still prevent more damage but you've a little bit missed the boat yeah um, so once a kid is diagnosed with arthritis we start sending them for eye screenings this is heartbreaking and I'm not even a parent dealing with this if I were to be a parent dealing with um, my child having arthritis what are some of the things that I could do emotionally physically mentally you know to get them through this and help them really get a grip on their quality of life it's such an important part um, of treating the disease I mean trying to help families you know deal with it in their lives and I think mm -hmm. the arthritis foundation is a huge resource um, for families um, they can set you up with other families that are um, dealing with similar conditions um, which can be a blessing like sometimes mm -hmm. it's nice to hear another family that went through it and had a good experience or um, you know know or really just knows what you're going through. Even if you're not even talking about the disease, you can go out to coffee and talk about like the mo movie you saw recently, yeah. but it's somebody that just gets it. And I think that can be really critical to parents. Some parents actually feel much better when they take an active role um, in organizations like the Arthritis Foundation. So there are parents involved in the Arthritis Foundation and that help with our you know, annual walks and things like that. Mm -hmm. Additionally, we have parents involved in CARA, that group I was telling you about before, that help with our research. They help you know, shape what we do because we care about their opinions. Like, Absolutely. You know, we want to know what they want us to do too because um, we may have one agenda, but it doesn't matter if the people we're treating have a different agenda. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, you know, we're lucky at Hackensack. We have social work support and um, we even have a group for parents of kids that have chronic conditions that meets about once a month um, with a social worker just to sort of talk and vent um, that's nice. And that, I think, is a good source of support, yeah. And if, you know, and if when parents are really struggling, um, we can, we try to get them one-on-one -on -one help because mm. it's it's sort of like the old um, airplane analogy. Every I love your analogies. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. Um, that's good because I have a lot of them, <laughs> apparently. Um, but you know how they say in the airplane, you put your own mask on before you can put your kid's mask on yeah. uh, if the oxygen comes down because if you you know run out of air and pass you out, can't. you can't help anybody else. And I, I try to remind parents of that a lot. Like you have to take care of yourself. So you can be there for your children. So you can be there for your children, whether that means going out and going for a run or talking to a therapist. Everybody has a different way of doing that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we respect that and we know you have to figure it out. In terms of the kids, I I truly think once they hit eight years old and can go to the sleepaway camp, it's like such a phenomenal experience for them. So, I mean, these kids make friendships that last lifetimes and... Um, to watch them with each other is so sweet and such a nice experience. Um, a couple of years ago, I was speaking at um, Juvenile Arthritis Day, which we have once a year. So that's another place where parents can both get information about the conditions and also meet other parents. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a group, I was talking about transition, which is a very hard time for patients um, 
dealing with any chronic disease, but when you're transitioning from pediatrics to adult medicine, um, there are a lot of things you need to know, and we try to prepare them for it, but um, I was giving a talk giving some specific tools for that. Mm -hmm. And so a whole bunch of the teenagers who knew each other had come, and they were sitting together and just watching them, even though they may or may not have been paying attention to my lecture, (laughs) (laughs) but watching them enjoy each other's company was just you know, so heartwarming and so nice to see. Yeah. Um, and we as practitioners try to provide as much support as we can. Are there um, a lot of pediatric rheumatologists around? Is this kind of a niche specialty? So there are not a lot in most areas of the country. Here in New Jersey, we happen to have quite a few. Um, our center at Hackensack is the biggest in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, there are six of us. Um, with different areas of expertise. So we are very lucky, and um, it's one of the reasons I love working there because, you know, we all know different things and we all have different areas of expertise so we can really pick each other's brains. And I think, you know, no one should be so proud that they can ask each other, you know, with questions, especially with these rare diseases, right? Um, So having a big team to have as a resource is really critical. However... There are certain states in the United States of America that do not have a single pediatric rheumatologist. Really? Some patients have to travel hours and hours, Mm. Um, particularly in, you know, the middle part of the country. Um, There are just fewer of them, and sometimes they're treated by adult rheumatologists, Mm. um, which is, you know, valuable, and they're so lucky that they have them, but at the same time, their training's different. Kids kids aren't just small adults and so in terms even on things like medication doses it's challenging absolutely Um, and you know so there was a report that came out a couple of years ago showing that the need for pediatric rheumatologists in the next several years um, will continue to go on and on to widely surpass the actual number of pediatrics. There's a national shortage, and um, yeah, and so one of the things that I'm personally interested in is trying to get people interested in pediatric rheumatology, um, and we're actually trying to form a fellowship at Hackensack for pediatric rheumatologists so that we can, you know, educate more of them and um, get more of us out there, and it's just one more way that we can help people's lives on an even grander scale. Like, yeah. if you train someone, you know, what's the saying, since you like my analogies, um, <laughs> yes. give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. Yeah. If we can train fellows to go out and do this, then we, you know, have created more people to help the patients, and mm-hmm. that that's invaluable. It's giving back in another way. Yeah. I have to say, this was incredibly fascinating, and you kind of just dropped a lot of knowledge that I didn't <laughs> even know was out there. Um, so thank you. And oh, I'm sure there's going to be parents out there listening, you know, saying thank you and really trying to understand the symptomology of their children. And oh. um, you kind of broke it down in a very nice way with your metaphors. So <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Of it's course. My pleasure. The material provided through this HealthU podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.